0: And so we've taken a week, and we've looked at each one of those, and we're going to look at the capstone today, to the glory of God alone. As we do so, it's important to keep in mind uh, that this concept of sola deo gloria, to the glory of God alone, is incredibly broad. What they mean when they say this is basically uh, a fill-in-the-blank scenario where anything you put before it fits. What I mean is for the Protestant Reformation, as they read the scriptures, they recognized that the ultimate end of all things, intended or otherwise, is the glory of God. And so it's difficult to, in a single sermon, kind of nail down this whole reality. And so I've decided to do something um, in particular. Uh, As we look at 1 Peter 4 this morning, We'll begin by laying kind of a broader foundation to just understand um, the concept of, of God's glory and the pursuit of it and the reality of it. Um, and then what Peter does very well in this passage is he gives us a couple of touch points in our life that will help us walk through this in hopefully a broadening sense. So um, let's read the passage and then we'll pray. I'm breaking one of my rules this morning, and I promise you I'm the only one who will be uncomfortable, but we're going to straddle two paragraphs halfway, where we're really missing the beginning of one, and we won't finish the end of the other, and it goes against every fiber of my being. But, uh, but I do, I just want to focus on, on these two illustrations of the reality of to, glory, to the glory of God alone. And so I want to pick up in 1 Peter 4, verse 10. beloved do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you but rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed if you are insulted for the name of Christ you are blessed because the spirit of glory and god rest upon you but let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer, or as a meddler. Yet, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Let's pray. Father, I ask that as we look at your word, your name would be glorified. I pray that you would take this as an opportunity to reveal your glory afresh to us and remind us of your worthiness to be praised and worshipped. I ask, Lord, that by the power of your Spirit, you would speak into our hearts, that you would shape the universe we live in, and that we would respond with every fiber of our being. Praise God. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So... Before we talk about what we do when it comes to the glory of God, we have to begin with what God does. You see, if you read the Bible from cover to cover, basically anywhere you pick up, if you read for long enough, you're going to get cues, purpose statements, places where it says, this is why, okay? And you'll find many penultimate goals in Scripture, in fact, one of the things that fascinates me about God, according to the Bible, is how incredibly good he is at multitasking. In any single circumstance in your life, there's so many things going on that God is sovereignly doing. But if we talk about the ultimate goal, if you ask the question, why is God doing blank? Why has God done blank? The ultimate goal, the one that's all the way at the front of the bus, the locomotive that's driving the the train, is always going to be God's glory. Now, this is relatively easy to demonstrate, and I'm going to jump around to a few places. Don't feel the need to turn there, because we're not going to spend a lot of time there this morning. I just want to illustrate. So, for example, why did God create the world? In Psalm 19, you might even be uh, familiar with the opening sentence, it says that the heavens declare the glory of God. In other words, the world as we know it was built to proclaim God's glory. And if you've seen a sunset, if you correlate the idea of God as creator to the beauty of creation, uh, the majesty of creation, the tremendous power that we see in creation, Um, then that probably makes a lot of sense to you. But another place we can look is at the incarnation. You see, the pinnacle, centerpiece, climax of the story that the Bible tells is God becoming man. And when we ask, why did God do that? It's pretty easy to say God did that to redeem mankind, to set things right, to save us from our sins. And all of those would be absolutely true. But it's intriguing that when you look at Philippians chapter 2, it walks through a path. And every time it's going, and then what happened? And then what happened? And I want you to notice what's at the end of the story. And so, like I said, don't worry about turning there, but just listen as Paul here explains why God became man in Jesus Christ. And this is what he says he says this in verse five, "'Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross.' Now, I want you to notice that so far we've been stepping down stairs. So Jesus, who was already equal with God, didn't see that as something to be held on to, but freely became a human being, taking on the form of a servant, even being obedient to the point of death, and not just any death, the death on a cross. Do you see that trajectory? Okay, it's, it's, he's walking down the stairs, and now it turns around and we start to get to the so why? What did he do that for? What did that accomplish? Now listen to what it says. Um, it says in verse 9, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Okay? Okay. And so, like I said, many, many penultimate goals in Jesus' coming. John chapter 1 says that Jesus came so that we would be able to see God. He stepped into our world and he made himself known visibly, tangibly. Obviously, most of the New Testament, in fact, we could just read a little bit further in Philippians and we would discover that God sent Jesus to die in our place as an offering for sin. But the ultimate reason, the final reason is to the glory of God. Why did God become man? To the glory of God. Okay, and it's the same with our salvation. Ephesians 1 verses 3 through 14 is in a a tremendously important passage. It's also incredibly deep. For one, in the Greek, it's a single sentence. Eleven verses without Paul stopping to take a breath or providing any form of punctuation. In doing so, he starts all the way with our salvation in in eternity past as part of the plan of God, walks it through the death of Jesus and what that does for us, and then looks through the spirit that God has given us to our fate in eternity future, all over the course of a single sentence. But as I read it to you, what I want you to focus in on is the purpose statements, the why, which are repeated for us throughout the chapter. Listen as I read. I'll emphasize the statements. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he blessed us in who were the first to hope in Christ, might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance, until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. Three times he says that these things were done so that God would be praised. And I could do this all day. We could turn to many passages. I could take you to Isaiah and show you that mankind was created to glorify God. We'll come back later to 1 Corinthians where Paul says, Whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do it as unto the glory of God. It doesn't really matter what road you get on in Scripture. The final terminal at the end of the road, all roads lead to the glory of God. Now, it may be easy to receive that until you start to think about it. Because let me just make an illustration. What if you lived your life and made every decision you make and every choice that you make and even summoned all those around you to live unto your glory? How would that be? The truth is, we're prone to that. The truth is, we've seen that in other people and the truth is, we don't like it. Right? If someone was to say, the meaning of life is found in making me making people see how awesome I am and my destiny in life is to promote myself we would get uncomfortable. So why is it that it's okay for God's primary purpose to be self-oriented? I don't know if you've seen it, but in the old version of the film Bedazzled, the one with Dudley Moore, Dudley Moore is taken kind of on a tour, and it's kind of like a, an Aladdin situation, except instead of a genie, there's the devil. And so he's, he's being offered whatever he can dream of for the sake of his soul. And there's an occasion where Dudley Moore is trying to better understand the devil, and he just asks, he says, I don't, why are you who you are? Why did you rebel against God anyways? And he says, well, let me show you. And the devil climbs up on top of a a telephone booth in downtown London, and he says, I'd like you to just dance around and tell me how great I am and sing songs to my praises. So Dudley Moore does it for about 30 seconds, and then he stops and he goes, hey, could we just switch places? And he says, exactly. Right? So why is it okay for God to be out about his own glory? And the reason is because of everything in the universe and beyond, there is one unique characteristic about God, which is the fact that he's actually worthy of it. As John Piper puts it so profoundly, if God were to point towards anything else, if he were to pursue any other end, it would be defined as idolatry. And it wouldn't just be wrong because it's not God, it would be wrong because it's not worthy of being God. God is so perfect, so inherently good, so wonderfully just, so incredibly sovereign, that the universe, as we know it, that our lives in particular, that all he is and does revolves around all he is and does. And so, when we say glory, we should probably do three things. First, we should recognize that God is in his nature glorious. That we don't add anything to God by praising him and we don't take anything away from God by refusing to do so. Any more in the, in the words of C.S. Lewis than a madman who tries to block out the sun by writing darkness on the walls of his cells. God is God and God is glorious, but because of that, we are called with all of creation to glorify God, which is to recognize that God really is what he really is. Okay. So, <clears throat> everything God does is for his own glory, and that's tremendously good, Okay, because that is through which God does things like creation that is through which god does things like sending jesus so that we may know him that is which through god does things like saving us from our sins it's very difficult with a level head to look at the story of the bible and cross your hands and go this isn't fair unless you recognize that yeah that's exactly right this doesn't make any sense When the reformers said, according to the glory of God or towards the glory of God alone, it recognized that the origin of all good things is not found in us, is not something we've earned or deserved, it's not oriented around us at all, it has to do with who God is, and that's what makes him worthy of glory. So what does it look like in our life? What does it look like to live unto the glory of God, to think unto the glory of God, to worship the glory of God, to point people to the glory of God? I just want to use 1 Peter this morning to make a couple of illustrations to broaden the box, okay? Because let's be be honest, if what I've just said is true, then we can answer this in a multitude of ways. Right? It's an inexhaustible category when we say, how can I glorify God? Everything you should be able to connect the dots. Okay? But I want to point out two. The first one, going back to First Peter 4 again. Listen to this first end of a paragraph. He says in verse 10, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. So what is Peter talking about here? He's talking about the reality that God didn't just save you as an individual, but he's created a people in Christ, a new humanity, a new Jerusalem, a kingdom of priests, a body, right? The, The Bible uses all these metaphors to describe what Jesus has done. He hasn't just saved you as an individual. He's saving a people, and he's made you a part of those people. And when it says here that as each has received a gift, the recognition is, so that we can be a family, so that we can be a body, God has uniquely, by His Spirit, given you the ability to serve one another, to build up the body of Christ. Now, if you've been with us for a while, you know, because we just walked through First Corinthians 12, 13, and 14, that these spiritual gifts fall in all sorts of categories. And so there's the gift of teaching, there's the gift of service, there's the gift of leadership, There's the gift of speaking in tongues. It's a broad category, but Peter here, he takes all of them and puts them just in two boxes, word gifts and service gifts. Some gifts are word gifts like prophecy, teaching, encouragement, exhortation. Some gifts are service gifts like help and service uh, and the gift of mercy. He recognizes that we've all been distinctly gifted and then he ties it directly to the glory of God. In fact, let's fast forward all the way to the end there of verse 11 in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever amen so that's where we're going destination's the same as we've been on all this morning but he does it specifically in how we treat one another how we serve one another how we use God's given gifts to serve one another now We could take a step back and just say, when you treat another person in the body of Christ a particular way, when you interact with one another, when you, the Bible would just use the word love, when you love one another, it should be as unto the glory of God, right? If you ask the question, why should I treat people in the church a particular way? Why should I love my neighbor? Always, it's going to be to the glory of God. In fact, I'll give you an illustration, Jesus says this in the Sermon on the Mount, let your light so shine before men that they see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Now, I want you to recognize we can do stuff that glorifies God and we can do the same stuff in a way that just glorifies us, right? That's what Jesus is making sense of. He says, let your light so shine so that, right? There's a way to work that points to the goodness and the glory of God but that's not what Peter is saying here. That's implied in what he's saying here. The end of your service is the glory of God, but that wouldn't be a complete understanding. Let's look again at what Paul says in 1 Corinthians ten thirty one. I quoted it already this morning, but he says, in everything you do, whether you eat, eat or drink, do everything to the glory of God. Now, first off, when he says whether you eat or drink, that's a profoundly category broadening statement, right? There are plenty of things in our life that we would put in the worship box, things that we do to the glory of God, but they're generally relatively big and important things. Why does Paul say whatever you eat or drink do is unto the glory of God? Why does he reduce it down to the lunch you have while you're taking a break from whatever else you're doing? Well, one of the reasons is contextual. You see, Paul is writing to the Corinthian church and they're fighting about what's okay and what's not okay to eat. Specifically, he's dealing with the reality of food that's been sacrificed to idols. And I know there's very, very uh, little modern touch point for that. So let me explain. In the ancient world, in the city of Corinth, meat was a delicacy, like most of the ancient world. It's not something you had with every, bit, every meal. It's not what's for dinner. It's what's for holidays. It's what's for special occasions. And because in the Roman world, there was no separation of church and state, religion and the civil organization we call government were so united that the butcher was also the priest, okay? And so when you went to the market and bought food, that food had already been offered to whatever the patron god was of the area. In fact, most meat was butchered in temples, Okay. And so the question is, is it okay to go into the market knowing that this food has been dedicated to a God that is not God? That's the fight. And you can read through the passage, he gives a tremendously nuanced and complex um, argumentation of this. But in the context here, he's recognizing that some people have decided it's no big deal, that it's just meat, the gods aren't gods. And other people go, yeah, but I used to worship those gods And it makes me tremendously uncomfortable to engage in that because I used to do it to the glory of whatever God it was, right? And so what he says here is whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do is unto the glory of God. So first baseline he sets is don't do it if it doesn't glorify God. But there's a second layer of context there. In this particular point in the argument, remember this is 1 Corinthians 10.31, you can go and take a look. He's telling them that they should abstain from, From eating, even if it doesn't affect their conscience, because it does affect their neighbors, and that's more important. And so he says, let your eating and and drinking be determined by if you're loving others. In other words, he puts two possibilities. You can make life about you. It's my sandwich. I want it. It doesn't bother me. Or you can make it about others. And he says that only one of those points to the glory of God. In fact, it's a simple truth It's a simple truth that one of the fastest ways to get to the glory of God is to stop thinking about you. (laughs) It's just the way it works. So Paul makes a big deal out of this, and that principle that he states is broadly appropriate, that you should have a natural filter where before you do the things you do, before you make the decisions you make, even as you enter in, like in Jesus' words, to do the right thing, are you doing it with the right orientation? That filter should always be in place. But Peter says something deeper here. Glory is not just the uh, aim of your life, although it definitely should be. There's something more in this idea of to God be the glory alone. Listen as he says this. Remember, he talks about word gifts, and then he talks about service gifts. I want you to see that both of them point to the same thing. This is what he says. As each one has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace, okay? As we've already seen, these gods are given, or these gifts are given by God, and so he says we're only stewards of them. These are not natural abilities, these are not talents, these are things that we have been given, and we will be held responsible for how we use them. We're to be stewards, but this is what he says, verse 11, whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. so do you see what he says here? He says, when you speak, let it be God's words. When you serve, let it be with the power that God gives. He roots not just the goal, but the ability in God. Okay? So it's not just the things you do as unto the Lord. It's the things that God does in you as unto the Lord. See, when the reformers said to the glory of God alone, it wasn't just setting out a finish line for your life. It was recognizing that every step you take is one that's enabled and possible and accomplished by God himself. There are really only two ways to view life. Either you do what's necessary or God does. Martin Luther, in his Heidelberg Disputation, which is profound and difficult and tremendously German, <laughs> argues that there are two possible theologians. One he calls a theologian of glory and another he calls a theologian of the cross. But when it comes down to it, the theologian of glory comes to God with something to offer. The theologian of the cross looks at the cross being the end of all earning, the end of all merit, the end of all effort, the end of your will itself. He basically says that unless you come to God despairing, then you don't come at all. And he goes on to show that even after that moment, any work that you do is a consequence of God's love and not a merit of that love. Okay, now I know that's Big theological terms, some of you that may have passed you by, that's totally fine. Let me summarize the point. The point is, God is designed at salvation in such a way that there's only one hero, and it's not you. If you were to know God, if you were to accomplish your purpose as a human being, if you were to serve others fully, completely, and wholly, if you were to live your life as a sacrifice, you'll have to recognize that the altar is already booked. And it's booked on your behalf. You'll have to come to recognize the fact that in and of yourself dwells no good thing, like Paul says. That apart from God, apart from Jesus, you can do nothing like Jesus says, okay? And so when we say to the glory of God alone, this isn't just the trajectory of your life, this is the engine that drives your life. This is the ability, even when it comes to just loving Christians, which I know sometimes is harder than loving other people, but in all honesty, in this room, in the church, in the body of Christ, we have a lot more tools for successful relationship than outside. When Christians gather together, they gather in the unity of the Spirit. When, the Chris- when Christians gather together, they gather as sinners in need of a Savior, and so forg- forgiveness should flow like wine. Okay? When Christians gather together, they gather with a reality of destiny that makes the relationship worthwhile, because you're going to know one another forever. Okay? And so all of those things should lead love to be easier in the church and I would just say this if you can't love the people in the church you can't love your neighbors if you can't love those who are dedicated and committed to being a family how will you love your enemies now Jesus makes very clear that loving enemies is the trajectory it's the goal that's where things are headed he says if you love your family what good is that if you don't love your family what are you doing he takes it at this level and he says, look, even that love, the abilities are God-given and the source, the source, the reality of what's happening in you is what's happening in you. There is a sense where as active as you can be in serving the body of Christ or, or out in the mission field of the world or doing your job, there's a sense, of course, where you're active in that. But there's a broader sense where you're passive, there's a broader sense where this is what God is doing in you. Listen again to the words of Paul. This is in 1 Corinthians 15. Paul here is talking about himself in relationship to the other apostles. And he points out that when he became a proclaimer of the fact that Jesus is alive, he was late to the show. Okay? But this is what he says. He says, last of all, as one untimely born, he appeared also to me, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that's within me. Okay, so he says a couple of things here. Let's deal with the first one. When he says here, by the grace of God, I am what I am, Paul is not making an excuse. I've said it before, but Popeye says, I am what I am and that's all that I am. Saint Paul says, by the grace of God, I am what I am and he's recognizing that he stands, that he lives and he breathes. He's no longer a persecutor because God has done something in his life. That's not a gate he cleared on his own. He didn't wake up one morning and go, man, persecuting Christians is dumb. I'm going about this all wrong. Let's go see if there's a better way to live. No, he had a miraculous encounter with the living Jesus Christ who said, I have a destiny for you, Paul. And he took him from this place of dead to life, from darkness to light. When he says, by the grace of God, I am what I am, he's saying, I am not an apostle because I rose to the top of the class. He was just appointed. But what does he say next? He says, "He says uh, his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Now that sounds, that sounds like a humble boast, doesn't it? He says, but let's be honest, I am clearly the most important apostle. That's what it reads like. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, when you look around at what God has done through me, you see a tremendous amount of work. And even there, to be clear, he adds, though it was not I, but the grace of God which is within me. And so here's the point. Paul doesn't just see God's work as the beginning of his Christian ministry. He sees it as the continuation of his ministry. It's not just the grace of God that gets you into the race, and now you run the race on your own. Listen, I'm so afraid that some of us see what Jesus did on the cross as a loan so that we could figure things out and get back in good standing with God. And so Jesus just dies to buy us time. Jesus just dies to give us a second chance. Jesus is our wisdom, our salvation, our sanctification, and our redemption. From beginning to end, it's all of Christ. God doesn't just offer us forgiveness in Jesus Christ, he offers us life. And so Paul recognizes here that each and every effort, every church he'd planted, every person he led to the Lord, every word that he spoke, every deed that he did was God working in him. And so at the end of the day, as much as you might admire Paul, you should admire God more because this is what the Lord has done. Okay. Now, I don't have time to pick pick apart how that actually works. But if you have a theology, a practical theology of life that says, God begins and now I do, then you misunderstand who God is. Jesus doesn't just run the pre-qualifying event and now you step into the race. He carries you. What he does, he does in you. He does through you, but he doesn't. That's what we mean when we say to the glory of God alone, okay? So it's not just God has done something really awesome for me. Now, the best way I can pay him back is to do something really awesome for him. It's something more profound than that. It's God has done something so awesome for me, it's changing me by his power from glory to glory. In fact, just think of this for a second, The God of the Bible is focused on his own glory. In fact, he says, my glory I will not share with another. But what is the destiny of you, Christian? The destiny is that along with Christ, you will be glorified. Have you ever noticed how pervasive that language is? How is it that both of those statements can stand in paradox but not contradiction? It's because every ounce of the glory you will one one time bear is alien glory. It wasn't found in you, it was created in you. It was manifest. It's like recognizing the moon is beautiful and then thinking scientifically and going, oh right, that's because the sun is reflecting on it. Okay? But Peter goes further. Not only does he talk about glory in this context, and he does profoundly. Let's read the ending again. And so he says, one who speaks is the oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. And then he says this, to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Now, I want you to notice that there's a self-perpetuating reality to glory here. Peter, just in talking about this and laying on, is just drawn into worship, drawn into praise. He gives a doxology here. He glorifies God because God glorifies God. Do you see that? Okay, it's profound. There's an overwhelming, there's a naturalness to this, okay? But I want you to notice where he goes next, okay? Because right now, what we have is a recognition that God does in us, We have a recognition that the goal of our lives should be the glory of God, but it's too easy to filter that through what the glory of us looks like. I'll show you what I mean. Look at what he says in verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. This is the evidence that we're on a detour. Life gets hard and we go, what in the world just happened? And Peter says, you shouldn't be surprised. Here's, here's what Peter is getting at. He says that tests and trials and difficulties and fiery times, that is life as intended. It's not a surprise. It's not an accident. It's not something on the side. It doesn't happen in the margins between God doing stuff in your life. It is God doing stuff in your life. In fact, notice what he says next in verse 13. But rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Okay, so why can we rejoice in suffering? Because if we rejoice in suffering, we'll rejoice all the more when the glory of Christ is revealed. What's the relationship between those two things? Okay, here's the first one. Suffering in this world sucks the life out of our idolatry. It reminds us of the things that we most care about, the things that we often pursue, all of them which happen to be self-oriented, comfort and fame, wealth and security. It reminds us, one, that there's a little bit temporary, that we can't be guaranteed those things. And two, that despite all of those things, what we have can't be taken from us. Okay? Think about the reality of heaven. I think sometime, sometimes we ponder the reality of heaven, and it doesn't sound like very much fun. You turn and you read the book of Revelation and you can relate a lot to the people on earth during that book and what they're doing, it feels like everyday life. But you look in heaven and what does it look like? It looks like a perpetual and continuous worship concert. Right? In fact, the elders, it says, uh, in the 24 thrones around the throne, do nothing all day but cast their crowns before the throne, fall on their faces and worship God. Let me just make an observation that God if God is not the joy of your life right now, then do you even want eternal life in the way that the Bible defines it? But suffering equips us for that life in in a really unique way, okay? Because it reminds us of the emptiness of the other things that we boast in. It reminds us of the shallowness of the other things we take comfort in. That like the Old Testament says, that money is just like an eagle that grows wings and flies away. There's nothing guaranteed there. And you go, well, but aren't some people rich until they die? Yeah, and then they die. Right? Fame, whatever it is that we put, you have to think past your funeral. Okay? But secondly, another thing it does is we actually get to experience the goodness of God that we couldn't see because we were so distracted. Sometimes... God turns off all the lights in our house to remind us of the incredible light of the sun. That's what he says here. He says, if we rejoice now in suffering, all the more will we rejoice in the glory of Christ because we're longing for it, because we're looking for it. But he says more here. He says, verse 14, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. And so he says, what about when people criticize you, when they insult you, when they call you names on behalf of Christ? He says, if you were insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Now, Peter's not making this up. He's taking this directly from the mouth of Jesus. When Jesus begins the Sermon on the Mount, he gives these beatitudes. Each one begins with, blessed are the, blessed are the poor in spirit, right? If you read all of them, they're all against what we would usually think. He creates a completely different value system for the good life, if you will, in the beatitudes. But the last one he gives is, blessed are you when they revile you and persecute you for the sake of my name. How happy you'll be. How much you've entered into the good life. And Peter picks up on that and he says the same thing here. He says, you're blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Now, how do we deal with that paradox? How is the bad life, the good life? How is the hatred of the world in some way glorifying to God? What is going on here? This is where I think Luther's theology of the, of the cross and a the theology of glory is most helpful. As I said earlier, he's just talking about who's the hero of your story. But once you get to the other side of it, the theology of, the glo- of glory and theology of the cross plays out in our lives all the time. Here's the difference. The theology of glory says, God is most glorified when I am most glorious. Theology of the cross remembers that the most glorifying, worshipful, profound- profoundly impacting event in history was not glorious. Glorious it looked like despair, it looked like brokenness, it looked like weakness. Have you ever seen the film Amadeus? Amadeus is the story of Mozart and the court composer named Salieri. And if you haven't seen it, it's it's really interesting. It's a fictional account where basically Salieri plots the death of Mozart. And the reason this movie was made is because late in his dementia-riddled journals... Salieri confesses in a single line to killing Mozart. We have no history on this, and so it's just a what if that's played out. But what you have is these two characters, one who aspires to greatness and doesn't find enough in him to get there. He's just a court composer. As soon as he meets Mozart, Mozart, he recognizes that he's nothing in comparison. And Mozart is crass, he doesn't seem to care, uh, and he's been given this tremendous gift Solieri early in the story, says that when I was a child, I prayed the vainest prayer anyone could ever pray, God, make me great, and I will make your greatness known. That's the theology of glory. But what does Jesus' life look like? Yes, Jesus says, when I am lifted up, God will be glorified. But what did that look like? That looked like being lifted up on a cross, It looked like rejection and persecution, defamation and weakness. Why is it? Why is it that that could possibly glorify God? Why didn't the incarnation look like a crown and a rule and a reign? Why the cross? One of the things that suffering demonstrates is the goodness of God despite circumstances. When we suffer and when we stand with Jesus against the grain of our reputation, against the grain of our well-being, when we die for the name of Christ, we by nature say this is worth dying for, this is worth suffering for. I know many of you know that beautiful passage in Romans 8 where Paul talks about how life can go totally sideways and yet we lose nothing. But do you remember what he puts at the heart of that? He says, I'm thoroughly convinced that neither death, nor life, nor power, nor principality, nor sword, nor things that are, nor things to come, that nothing can separate us from what? The love of God. He has something now that is is so good that nothing can take it from him. And that's how he thinks. He doesn't think about death or sword or persecution or any of those things taking anything from him. He says, no, this is totally secure. When we fast, we proclaim, like Jesus, I have a food that's better than your food, a food you know nothing of. My food is to do the will of him who sent me. What is Jesus saying when he says that in John chapter 4? He's saying that doing the work of God is nourishing and worth it. If you're single, if you're celibate, you are constantly proclaiming that there's something better than what marriage can offer, that there's a glory that is to come that will not just wipe away every tear, but will outstrip every joy. Fasting says God is worth it when there's no food. Celibacy says God is worth it when there's no sex, when there's no partnership, when there's uh, loneliness. That's why Paul says in 2 Timothy, no one stood with me. And then he corrects himself and he says, well, the Lord stood with me. He continues here. He says, but let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a meddler. He points out that some suffering is directly oriented to us doing the wrong thing. And he says, that's not what I'm talking about. Okay. And so we can't reduce this down to say, hey, you know what makes God look really awesome? When he forgives me of my sins, so I'm just going to go full nose to the grindstone and do whatever I want to do. That doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense to Paul. Read Romans chapter 6. It doesn't make any sense to Peter here. He says, I'm talking about a particular type of suffering, not suffering for your pleasures, not suffering for you to make your name great, but suffering for the name of Jesus. And then listen to what he says in verse 16. Yet, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. He ties it again to the glory of God. What is he saying? He's saying that if we suffer because we are followers of Christ, well, first, this is what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, rejoice, because it shows you're playing for the right team, because as it happened to the master, so it will happen to his servants. But more importantly than that, when we take a stand for Christ, we point to the value of Christ. We point to the goodness of Christ. And so we say, it's worth it for me to endure hardships if it demonstrates, makes visible, tangible the glory of God. That's what he's saying in this passage. Now, like I said, when we say sola deo or soli deo Gloria." all to the glory of God. We mean so many things, but I just want to review with you this morning the things that it also means, okay? It doesn't just mean everything you do should run through that lens with that goal through that filter of will this glorify God? It absolutely means that, but it means more. It also means that everything you do, you do by the power of God because of the forgiveness of God, uh, you know, through the constant Uh, goodness of God, and so he gets the credit. It also means that when life gets hard, when things are difficult, when you don't have what you feel you need, you're reminded that what you do have is all you need. And when you suffer for the name of Christ, you by nature proclaim the value of that name. And so, if, if you're going through something hard this morning, first off, you're in good company. The church, as individuals, suffering is guaranteed. Peter says, don't be surprised when it comes upon you. If you're not suffering yet, you will. That's a part of the life that we live in, but that is the context for the glory of God. That is a place where these things are fulfilled, not merely just a chance for you to grin and bear it because Jesus is worth it, but also because it's in those places that we're reminded of the depths of God's goodness. But I want to just drive this home to finish. Why is it worth it in suffering? Why should we orient our whole lives around it? Why, after all of the blood, sweat, and tears that we pour into our family, into our work life, into our ministry or our mission field, why can we possibly point to God, like Paul, and say, nevertheless, it was God working in me, to the praise and glory and dominion of his power, amen, like Peter says? It's because God really is worth it. It's because he really is glorious, It's because the God of the Bible is the only God worth worshiping because he asks nothing of us and offers everything. Because his character is so perfect that the way life works at all is to work in orientation to that reality. It's because this is the God who, while we were still sinners, while we were the very enemies of God, did something to set it right and didn't wait for us to show interest or to demonstrate value or worth or to even offer some sort of love or to come up with a plan to get back to him. No, this is the God who on his own initiative, because of his own character, said, you stand against me. I'm going to do something about that. And what did it look like? It looked like him taking on flesh enduring the suffering and pain that you've tasted, drinking it to the bottom of the cup, taking all of your guilt upon his shoulders, and dying so that, not just so that he could be raised, that's where he started, so that we could be raised with him. Is that a God worth expending every ounce of your life in worship and praise and proclamation? Absolutely. And if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, this is what we're always talking about. This is why this is so important. It's not just because we believe this is the only way to salvation, although we believe that. We also believe that there's never been proclaimed a better way of salvation, a way that was so loving and so giving and so glorious glorious and so worthy of praise. We're inviting you to know the God of glory. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for these solas, for this series, that you did something so profound that we can only categorize it by limiting it down with the word only, that we can know you and your salvation according to the scriptures alone, as accomplished in Christ alone, due to your grace alone, accessed by faith alone to the glory of God alone. And I pray, Lord, that you would make our passion for your glory burn so deeply that it consumes everything in our life, that every decision would be caught up in what would give God the most glory, that every action would be done in such a way that people see through us to your goodness and your glory, that our devotion to the world would confound or devotion to you would confound the world, not just because, wow, isn't that person so committed, but, wow, maybe there's something to this whole God thing. Maybe Jesus is worth something if he's worth suffering for, bearing the shame of. God, I pray that as a church collectively, we would be a constant demonstration of your goodness. That We would proclaim you the hero of our individual stories, of the God who we worship, of the primary and total worker of all good things in us and through us, and that we would invite people to know and worship the God who is knowable and worthy of worship. We pray this in your name. Amen.